challenge. It took me years to learn it myself. I had some help. So I am so excited to be here. Um, I, our relationship, our knowledge of this church goes way back. We left Italy back in the summer of 2012 with nine suitcases, one guitar, and a stroller and got on an airplane to come here. And we were picked up by an Italian friend who brought us straight to Jan's house. And so we spent our first week in Italy with Jan, or in Italy, sorry, coming from Italy. We spent our first week here in her home as we were looking for a place to stay. And we were guests and we were treated as kings and queens and her hospitality, I'm sure you know, is far reaching. So uh, it, is, it is really a privilege and a pleasure to be with you this morning. And I'm excited to be able to open God's word with you. Uh, I am the children and family pastor at Placerita Bible Church. So I oversee yeah, diapers to diplomas and, and everything in between and absolutely love doing that. I'm also at the Master's Seminary. I'm a card-carrying nerd. I enjoy, I enjoy studying theology. I enjoy studying what God has given us to know about him and enjoy seeing that played out in the world around us. And I enjoy teaching that. And so it's, uh, it's a great privilege this morning to be able to be here uh, with you to open God's word with you. Would you... See, can I do this without? Would you bow with me in prayer? Heavenly Father, you are amazingly good to us. Lord, we could, and we will sing forever, Lord, about how good you are to us. Lord, we'll sing forever about your greatness, about your love, about your mercy, about your kindness, Lord, about what you have done for us and through us in the cross. And Lord, we'll sing forever about how amazing you are. And Lord, that song will never get old. Lord, that chorus will never dry out. And we're grateful for that. Lord, we're grateful that you are just above our reach. You're beyond our complete comprehension, Lord, because that drives us to want to know you more. Lord, thank you for that. Help us this morning as we study your word. In your name we pray. Amen. He's on your road, I was told. He's on your road. I said, who's on my road? It was January 20th of 2010. We were coming off of uh, a great day off. We were living in the city of Acireale, Sicily at the time. And, and on a day off from school, on a day off from work, when the whole town takes a day off, you would do what we did, I'm sure, if you had a living, active volcano in your backyard. We grabbed our boogie board and we put our snow clothes on and we went to the top of it. Because active volcanoes, have, they do this great thing. The, the, the lava, as it flows out, it literally fills in every nook and cranny and crag and pushes trees away and everything away. And then when it snows... You've got the best sledding hills around. So we had spent a day sledding on the top of Mount Etna. It was about a 45-minute drive from our backyard. And that's not 45 minutes like on a freeway. It's zigzagging up the hill. It was literally in our backyard. And we came down off the hill. We were tired, ready to, ready to take a nap. And, and there's a police officer right next to our road. It would be closer than from here to probably the out the outside of your church doors and he was directing traffic away and I said excuse me I just I need to go right there that's my road and he said he is on your road 
he is on your road. You see, it was a day where the city, the, the, city, the city in Italy in which we lived, Acireale, was celebrating their patron saints day. Patron saints, according to the catholic.org, is, uh, is patron saints are chosen as special protectors or guardians over areas of life. These areas can include occupations, illnesses, churches, countries, or causes. Anything that's important to us, there can be a patron saint over that thing. The earliest records show that people and churches were named after apostles and martyrs as early as the fourth century. And so this idea of elevating patron saints to a vener- veneration status, a worship status, started early on. There are, se- there are 1,776 patron saints according to the Roman Catholic Church. There's patron saints for pretty much anything. I found a list of them. Um, There's patron saints for alcoholism. That's St. Matthias the Apostle. Or alcoholics, that's St. John of God. Uh, There's a patron saint for Boy Scouts. If that's you, St. George is the patron saint of that. There's a patron saint of funeral directors. You could probably guess it. Joseph of Arimathea is the patron saint for funeral directors. There's a patron saint for headaches and for love and for preachers and for orphans. The list goes on and on. And and while that's odd for us, it's different for us. Maybe you grew up in a Roman Catholic family. Maybe you saw saints all around the house or around the city in which you lived. Maybe, Maybe you understand that more than others, because it's not part of our evangelical tradition. The, the city of Achireale, our the patron saint of that city was St. Sebastian. St. Sebastian, he entered the army in 283 AD to help squell some of the, uh, the issues that were happening with the, uh, with the persecution of Diocletian. So Diocletian's persecuting the church and he enters the army to help put down these Christians that are worshiping this, this god. He enters under the emperor Diocletian and Diocletian, however, is unaware that he becomes a believer. So he becomes a believer as part of the imperial guard. He is the guard. So as he's arresting people and putting them in jail, he's also encouraging them and talking to them. And, and he's witnessing to other people in jail at the same time, quietly and secretly. And it comes about that Diocletian hears about him and confronts him and chains him to a tree. And his chosen set of archers shoot Sebastian with so many, so many arrows, it said, quote, he, they filled him with arrows as an urchin is full of pricks. So he was chained to a tree and he was shot full of arrows, but he was left there and he wasn't dead yet though. Uh, Irene of Rome comes to find him, takes him off the tree. They expect him to be dead. They think he's dead. That's why they leave him, but she nurses him back to health. He finds out that Diocletian is going to be, was going to be parading in one of the streets. So he stands up on a corner on top of a building where he can be seen and heard. And he shouts out to Diocletian as he comes by. Now, Diocletian thinks he's dead. So all of a sudden, you've got a dead man talking. And that scares Diocletian. And then when he comes to, orders Sebastian to be captured. And then they club him to death. This time, they make sure that they actually did the job. That's Sebastian. Sebastian was on my street. Sebastian, the idol 
that represents Sebastian once a year on January 20th would be taken out of the church. And we're not talking about some little statue. We're talking about something that is massive and huge and it's pulled on a cart and it takes between 30 and 60 men to pull this cart. All the men are dressed a little differently. Uh, they're, they're called the Sebastian's boys in Italian. They're the guys who pull the cart literally down every single street of the town. Fireworks are going off and we're talking a massive cart. Hundreds, thousands of people are following this cart. It's celebration. They're worshiping. They're celebrating. We would say worshiping. They won't say that. They're venerating Sebastian. I remember talking with friends of mine, non-believing friends, and I would say, why is it less than one month after the birth of the Christ are you celebrating like this? Because this man had his faith in the Christ. And yet right now what you're doing is taking this cart around and you're, you're celebrating him and you're praying to him that he can protect your town and bless your town and bring prosperity to your town. Yet he died for his faith in Christ. Christmas came less than a month ago. And you didn't have celebrations like this for Christmas. And my friends would say, huh, that's true. But it's patron saint day. And they would let it go. Now, none of you have those things necessarily in your homes, but idols are all around us. In Italy, they, they're all around. You'd see stickers of, of saints or stickers or statues of saints all around the house. You would see calendars with saints on them. And, and oddly enough, you'd see calendars of saints. And right next to it, there'd be a calendar of scantily clad women. The, the irony in that was not lost on me. This, this country is going after things and, and propping up things and putting idols in places and looking to them. We don't have that here. We don't have a St. Sebastian who's on your road, blocking your street, keeping you from going home and taking a nap. Uh, but beware. While we may not have them around here, and we may not have little Buddhas in our households, we may not have little things that, wor that we worship, and we may be thinking, and you may be thinking, but I'm not an idol worshiper this morning. That's not me. I want to take you to a text that should kind of shake you up a little bit. Flip to 1 John. It's one of those texts that I read, and I say, wait a minute, did I just read that right? Did I get that? 1 John chapter 5. 1 John is written by the Apostle Paul and he says, I write that you might know, right? John wants us to know what we believe and to have assurance in what we believe. And he writes the whole book and, and there's these tests of salvation. How do you know that you're in Christ? Read 1 John. Do you, do you declare Christ as being the Lord? Do you live your life trying to be sinless? Do you live your life pushing aside sin and living for Christ? There's all of these tests. And you get to chapter 4, verse 5. And let me start reading in verse 13 just to kind of run into this a little bit. But I want you to notice how many times he talks about knowing something. As a Christian, what do you, what do you know beyond the shadow of a doubt? He says this, these things I've written to you who believe? So who is he writing to? To believers. He says, I'm writing to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence which we have before him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which, uh, which we have asked from him. Skip down to verse 18. 
We know that no one who is born of God sins. And he who has been born of God keeps him and the evil one does not touch him. And we know, he says, that we are of God. That the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding in order that we might know who is, the true, who is true and are in him who is true in his Son, Jesus Christ. Listen, over and over and over again, believer, Christian, what do you know? These are the things that we know to be solid, things that we know to be true. This is the foundation upon which our faith is built. We know. Look at the last verse in the Bible, or in, in, this, in this book though, verse 21. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. The thing that, that kind of stupefies me is that these believers would have been saved out of a pagan society. They would have been saved from idol worship. They would have been saved from these things. And yet, and he says, you know, but beware. Guard your heart. Protect yourselves, little children, from idols. Calvin said this, the human heart is an idol factory. The human heart is an idol factory. Every one of us from our mother's womb is an expert in inventing idols. We make them. We create them. They're all around us. And you may be thinking still, but I don't have those idols. I don't have statues. I don't have little things in my heart and in my life. I don't, I don't worship things. And I don't pray to things. I don't bow down to things. I have no idol. Let me rattle our cages just a little bit. An idol is anything that raises up or rises up to take God's place on the throne of your heart. Anything that consumes your passion and desire more than God does can be an idol. Anything that threatens to turn your first fruits of your mind into something else or towards something else is an idol in your life. Do you know more sports stats than you know Bible verses? You might have an idol. Ouch, that one hurt a little bit for those of you that like sports. I love sports. Do you know more about cars, tools, barbecue tips and tricks than you know about God's word? You might have an idol. Do you care more about keeping up with Instagram, Facebook, Facebook, TikTok, social media in general than you care about loving your neighbor? You might have an idol. Are you more knowledgeable about shiplap home decorating techniques than how much God cares for the nations to be saved? Say it with me. You might have an idol. It hurts a little bit as we start thinking about it. When we start placing other things on the scale and we put, we put the glory of God on this side and then we actually look at what our heart desires after and we put that on this side and we look at what our time, what we're consumed with time-wise and we put that on this side and we, we start stacking things up and we start realizing, wait a minute, some things outweigh my love and my passion for God. You just might have an idol. I'm not done, by the way. Let's keep going. Do you scroll more on a screen than you read God's word? You might have. Do you know more lyrics about songs and have them memorized more than you have Bible verses memorized? You might have. Are you more knowledgeable about why homeschooling, public schooling, or private schooling is better than knowing how many books are in the Bible? You might have 
an idol? Do you spend more time watching football, baseball, or in my case, it could be soccer, because I'm a soccer fan? Do you watch more sports, TVs, and movies than you do enjoy reading God's own word? Say it, you might have an idol. These things aren't evils in and of themselves. It's not wrong, and I'm not advocating that, that we become legalistic and that you say, okay, I want to watch a two-hour movie tonight, so I better read my Bible for two hours first. I'm not, we're not advocating legalism, but I am saying put your desires and your heart attitude and the things that you love doing on one side of a scale, and if the other side is God's throne and it's outweighed by the things that you do and the things that you talk about and where you spend your money, you might have an idol. We need cage rattling verses like that from John, don't we? We need to be reminded about the glorious position of who God is. And we need to be told, little children, protect your hearts from idols. What we need is a strategy. We need to be ready to guard our hearts. We need to be ready because we know the schemes of the evil one, right? We need to be ready for when things come up to try to take God's place off of his throne on my heart. I need to be able to say to those things, no, I will not. I, I will not. So this morning, I want us to look at a passage in Isaiah that gives us two actions to take to protect your heart from idols. So let's flip to Isaiah 44. The book of Isaiah, just as far as context goes, Isaiah is an amazing book. It's written to a set of believers who aren't even alive yet, right? So he's speaking to people. He's prophesying to people who are in front of him. But it's about 100 years before Judah is going to go into captivity. And the specific text that we're looking at today is talking to the people coming out of captivity 70 years after they went in. So the, the recipients of this letter, the recipients of this message, this part of Isaiah, are actually nowhere near Isaiah. It's about 170 years into the future. That's what he's talking about. And I, I, I think I titled this message, How Big Is Your God? How big is your God? And if you're theologically inclined this morning, you would say, how big is my God? We can't put parameters on how big my God is. He, is. he is immeasurable. It would be wrong to even try to figure out how big my God is. He is omnipresent. He fills all space and all time with, with the fullness of his being. That's how big my God is. But what if I... What if we titled it, how big is your God, little g? Little idols that you put in your life. How big is your little God? The context, again, are people in exile. People that have been in time out for 70 years from Israel. For most of us, depending on your age, you would have grown up in exile. If we were in exile right now, maybe you were born when Israel went into exile. Maybe you've grown up while Israel's been in exile. And, and you've, been, you've been ridiculed. You've been made fun of by the Babylonians. Where's your God? They would say. How big is your God? Obviously not big enough. Because we took, down, we took you down. We took you into captivity, the Babylonians might say. Where is your God? Did he abandon you? Did he forget about you? Is he weak? Is he helpless? And you've grown up with that. This message is such an encouraging message. We're going to be looking uh, ultimately about kind of two main points. Guard your heart by knowing his greatness. 
and then guard your heart by knowing their weaknesses. But look first just how God introduces himself. Isaiah 44 verse 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and I am the last and there is no God besides me. What a declaration. This is God's intro to what he's about to say. This is just him showing up on the scene. Thus says the Lord. It's the classic introduction for all prophetic uh, passages. This is God's word. This is the word of Yahweh, the king of Israel. This brings us back, just the fact that it's the word of Yahweh, it brings us back to the burning bush, right? Remember, Moses is at the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3, and God wants Moses to go back to Egypt, go back to the superpower, go back to the, the man who has more power than anyone in the world, and you're going to tell that man that God says, let my people go. And Moses says, who am I going to say sent me? What's, what's your name? And God says, I am Yahweh. Tell him, I am that I am. I'm the, I'm the God who is above time. I'm the God who is above all of creation. I'm the transcendent God. I am the one who was and is and always will be. Tell him that. So in here, when God says to the, to the Israelites who are in captivity, thus says Yahweh, it's placing this message directly into the covenant-keeping name of God. That name is used more than 6,000 times in the Old Testament. That's God's personal name. Often we just think of God as being the name of God. God is a, is a generic name for a deity. Yahweh is his name. And we also know there are other names, right? But this is his covenant-keeping name. And he is their king, he says. This says Yahweh, the king of Israel. He's their king. He's their king in captivity, He's their king even in adversity. He hasn't abandoned them and he hasn't thrown them out. I am your king. I reign and rule over you even if you're in captivity. He also says that he's the redeemer. It's a title that's used only 14 times in this book. And it's only from chapter 40 on. Chapter 40 is when he starts talking about rescuing them. He calls them now, or he calls himself their redeemer. I will rescue you. I will ransom you and bring you out from Egypt. Or uh, Egypt, sorry. That's what happened back in Exodus. I will bring you out from Babylon. Just like I redeemed Israel from Egypt, I'm going to redeem Israel from you. Again, this is just the introduction. Imagine growing up in, in, in Babylon all this time and imagine having that oppression from the Babylonians your entire life. And then you hear this. I haven't abandoned you. I haven't left you. I am your king. I am your redeemer. He says, I am the first and the last. And there is no God besides me. Again, Babylon. God's all over the place. Temples all over the place. Pagan worship all over the place. Idols everywhere. And God says, there is no God besides me. The phrase that he actually uses in Hebrew sets it up with, with emphasis. I, myself, first. And I, myself, last. And without me, no gods. I'm it. I'm it. He declares that he's the beginning and the end. And that's the basic meaning, the basic, basic, basic meaning of the name Yahweh. He's the covenant-keeping God, and he's the eternal God, and, and he is the beginning, and he is the end, and all things fit according to his plan, and that's who I am, he said. 
before things came to happen, he knows it. So after declaring, him what make, after declaring what makes him God, he unleashes a taunting challenge. So the rest of our text is like God taking off his metaphorical glove and throwing it onto the ground and, and challenging the other gods to a duel. He says, rise up for the rest of the text. Show me who you are, he says in the rest of the text. Because I am God. So our first point after this introduction, our first point is guard your heart by knowing his greatness. He's going to go on talking about who he is and how transcendent, how above us he is. Number one, guard your heart by knowing his greatness. Look at verses seven and eight with me. Who's like me? Let him call out and declare it. And let him tell it to me in order from the time that I established the ancient people and let them declare the things that are to come and the events that are going to take place. Do not be in dread and do not be afraid. Have I not long since caused it to be heard to you and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there any other God besides me? Or is there any other rock? I know of none. I love this. Remember, Judah is in exile, surrounded by foreign gods, surrounded by people, tempting them to change, to abandon their faith and come to this polytheistic worship of, of many gods. They're being ridiculed. They're being made fun of. This God must not, must not be real. And yet here, God unleashes a challenge. Yahweh says, stand up. Look at verse 7. Who is like me? Who is like me? Stand up. Let them, let them be heard. Let them be seen. Let these idols speak for themselves. Let these gods come and challenge me. Who is like me? He says. And let him recount it to me in order from the time that I established the ancient nation. So he's saying, let this idol, let these gods, let these fake gods declare history. Let them look back on what I've done. Let them look back at how I've brought my ancient nation, the ancient nation of Israel, to where they are today. Can these gods do that? And in some way, that's not mind-blowing. We've got the internet. We can Wikipedia anything, right? We can look up history, and, and I like history. I love studying history, and there's a sense in which we can become little mini experts in history because history's done, History is in the past and we can look at it and we can categorize it and we can, we can teach lessons on it, right? History has been done, but the real test of who's God comes next. First, he says, let them rise up and, and declare the ancient things. But the bigger test is what happens here. He says in the middle of verse seven, and let them declare to them. So let the idols declare to the people the things that are coming, the things that are coming. You are an expert in what happened yesterday. I can think back through what I did yesterday and where we went as a family and, and, and the things that we talked about and the things that we did. I have no idea what's going to happen in two minutes. I have a pretty good idea what's going to happen in two minutes because I've got some notes here and these notes are going to bring me to where I think we're going to, what we're going to talk about in two minutes. But I don't know the future. I can guess at it. But but where I was five years ago is easier for me to talk about. Or where I was 10 years ago in the summer of 2012, I can remember that. But 10 years from now, I have no idea. There's the test of Godhood right there. 
Let any other fake, false, phony God rise up and tell you about the past. Maybe they can, they can talk about it in shaky details, but the future no one knows. And he says, I am the Lord. I am the king. I am your redeemer. And I know the future. In fact, remember, this text was given to them 170 years before. He had already declared 170 years ago from the lips of Isaiah what they would be thinking and feeling as they're in exile. I've already told you, he says in verse 8, don't tremble and do not be afraid. Have I not long since announced it to you and declared it? The very fact that you're in exile, I declared before it happened. The very fact that you would be redeemed, I declared before it happened. I am God. As you think about the little idols that are in your heart and in your life. Maybe it is sports. Maybe you know more about baseball than anything else. Maybe you know more about social media and you know more about all kinds of whatever it is you know more about. Those things that grip your heart and grip your mind and take your attention away from God. Put that on a scale with the greatness of the Lord God Almighty and his greatness should just obliterate what's in our hearts. His greatness should cause our hearts to just bow down and worship and say, there's nothing like you, our King and our Redeemer, the Great One of Israel. There's no one like you. And I love how a little bit God gets a little sarcastic here. He gets sarcastic. Look at, look at the end of verse 8. He says, are you not my witnesses? Is there any God besides me or, or is there any other rock? The omniscient, all-knowing God says, is there something out there beyond me? that I don't know about? The, the obvious answer is no. There's nothing that God can't know about. He says, is there another rock for you to stand on? Is there another rock for you to hide behind? Rocks in Israel were huge. Not like rocks, like, oh, look at that rock. Uh, but like rocks, right? A rock would provide shade in the heat of the desert. A rock would provide a, a fighting battle vantage point in the midst of a war. A rock provides shelter in a storm, right? A rock is so important. God says, is there another rock besides me? And look at the last, the last little phrase. I know of none. I don't know. I don't know of any, God says. I'm the maker and creator of the heavens and the earth. By my word, they came into being. By my word, life began. When I said, let there be trees, trees were because I said it. Trees, creation had to obey because I said it. I know all things and I am all things to you. Is there anything out there besides me? I don't know. So the first way to protect your heart, to guard it, is really to know his greatness. When you put that into perspective, there, there's, there's no second guessing your little idol. Back in Italy, when I first moved there, I had a Fiat Tipo. Uh, a Fiat Tipo is your working man's car. No bells or whistles, uh, no electric windows. Uh, I can't remember. It may or may not have had air conditioning. Um, it just got you from point A to point B. That's it. I love my Tipo. Nice little car. You didn't have to argue with me, though, that the Tipo wasn't the greatest car because every time I parked next to pretty much any other car, it's easy to see the greatness that's out there, right? Especially if I park next to, like, a Ferrari, right? Which I wouldn't do for fear that I might touch it with my door. I would park away from it and then go look at the Ferrari. But, but if you parked my little Fiat Tipo next to pretty much anything else, and I would step back and I would go, wow, by looking at the greatness of whatever was next to it, 
my little Fiat Tipo was humbled. And when you put God's greatness into perspective in your heart and in your lives, everything else falls apart. Everything else is obliterated. The little idols that we create fall down because God is great. So the first point is guard your heart by knowing his greatness. The second point is guard your heart by knowing their weaknesses. Now we're going to talk about the idols themselves. Yahweh now points to how powerless and how weak man-made idols really are. And he does it in three ways. So we're going to have three little subpoints here. And the first subpoint is know the craftsman's weakness. Know the craftsman's weakness. This is verses 9 to 11. And here, ultimately, God's taking that little bit of sarcasm and he's going to, he's going to carry it on as he talks about the foolishness of serving little idols. And here's the, the craftsman's weakness. Verse 9, those who form a graven image are all of them futile. And they're desirable things, the images themselves, their desirable things are of no profit. And even their own witnesses, so their own prophets, even their own witnesses fail to see or know so that they will be put to shame. Who's formed a God or cast a graven image to no profit? Behold, all his companions will be put to shame. The craftsmen themselves are mere men. Let them assemble. Let them all assemble, he says. Let them stand up. Let them be in dread. Let them together be put to shame. He's talking about the craftsmen mostly here. In these verses, the Lord's calling them to stand up and make their case before him. Verse 9, in essence, is God delivering the subpoena to them saying, he's taunting them, stand up. Stand up before me. Let's line up all these idols and let's talk about them. He calls the prophets, the, their witnesses, he says in the text. Their own prophets of these idols are blind. Their own prophets can't speak. Their own prophets can't know the future. They fail. And lined up three times in front of him are these craftsmen. And he says, those who create the idols should be shamed. And the reality is you and I creating little idols in our own hearts should be shamed. Comparing them to the greatness of our God. Three times, he says, they should be shamed. And in verse 10, he, he attacks the first of their wrongs. It's here that the Lord wants his children to start thinking rationally. All of these craftsmen, ultimately, the craftsmen themselves are in it for the money. Look at verse 10. It's where he says, Who has fashioned a god or cast an idol to no profit? No one's in the idol-making business pro bono. No one's making and casting little idols because the, the idol itself is worth, worth it. They cast them and make them and sell them so that they can make money. They're not leaving their, their, their life's fortune to, to the idol. They're not hoping that the idol will sustain them. They're not hoping that the idol will bring them blessing in life. They're making idols and selling them so that they can be sustained and that they can have blessing from selling them. No God crafter does it for the sake of the God or humanitarian efforts. They're all in it for their own money, for their own profit. Secondly, the second argument that he has in here is found in verse 11. And it's really going to flush, be flushed out in the rest of the next eight verses. But he says, the, the idol makers are but mere men. That's actually a strong argument. That's not a simple thing. The one making the very idol that you bow down and worship is but a mere human. 
Think about that compared to worshiping the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords who's created all things, right? Not even the gods themselves are capable of creating something in their own image, but they must be created by a human. Yet God in Genesis chapter one says, let us make them in our image. We are the image of God. We walk and talk the image of God. And yet the creation has to go and make little images. They are but mere men, God says. Yahweh is the creator of men. But these gods need the men to create images for themselves. Let's go to the second point, the second sub-point, the idol's weaknesses. We looked, we've looked at the craftsman's weaknesses. Let's look at the idol's weakness, verses 12 to 17. Not only should the crafters be put to shame, but the idols themselves are futile. Let's read verses 12 and 14 for right now, through 14. The man, the mere man, shapes iron into a cutting tool. And he does his work over the coals and fashions it with hammers and working it with strong arms. He also gets hungry and his strength fails and he drinks no water and becomes weak and weary. Another shapes wood and he extends a measuring line and he outlines it with red chalk and he works it with planes and outlines it with a compass and he makes it in the form, listen to this, he makes it like the form of a man. Like the beauty of a man, so that it may sit in a house. Surely he cuts cedars for himself and raises it up for himself among the trees of the forest. He plants a fir and the rain makes it grow. Here we've got verses 12 to 13 describe the folly of even considering that humans, created beings, have to work and sweat. They put effort and blood into making their own tools. So to craft the ultimate idol at the end of the day, first it starts with working over the coals to make a saw or to make a hammer or to make tools. And, and he works hard and, and the, the man is sweating and beating the metal with a hammer. And then he doesn't eat and he gets hungry and he loses his strength. And he doesn't drink and he gets weary and, and he tires out because he is but a mere man. So here God is saying, look at how the mere man works. Henry Rousseau says this, he's a French impressionist, post-impressionist painter. He says, in the beginning, God created man in his own image. But man, being a gentleman, returned the favor. Because this, this idol maker is now making, making an idol to bow down and worship. And he makes it in the image of what? A man. He makes it in the image of himself. So, so now mankind is worshiping himself, worshiping things that look like him and act like him and talk like him rather than worshiping the creator himself. And so again, think of the things in your lives that threaten your heart with image worship, idol worship. What are the things, if it's sports, you're talking about a man-made game, a man-made game where men sweat and, and play soccer or swim or baseball, men and women, right? They do that and we, we learn the stats. We want to know the knowledge. We want to know who's being traded by whom and where they're going and if that new team is going to be good because of it or for all the worse for it. We, we worship things that are man-made, run by men who are sinners and they're evil in and of themselves. 
He says, first of all, isn't it crazy that you're making an image of yourself? As I was studying for this and just looking up selfies, because we like images of ourselves, I I came to find out back in 2018, there was an article written about the rising number of selfie deaths in the world. Selfie deaths. These are people who are going to the edge of cliffs and trying to take selfies down the cliff, or they're trying to get as close to trains as they possibly can to get that ultimate selfie right next to the train, and they end up dying from it. I remember going to the, uh, to the Grand Canyon when we moved here from Italy and, and seeing people climb over the fence and stand on the edge, and I, I couldn't watch. No one died, spoiler alert that day. Uh, no one died, but I couldn't watch because I thought, how foolish of you. Because it's not enough just to show people the picture of the Grand Canyon. Because I've got to tell everyone on social media where I am, right? And I'm at the Grand Canyon right now. Right now or, or I'm at a restaurant and this food I'm eating, everybody needs to see it. So it's not enough to, and I'm guilty, it's not enough to show pictures of just the food. But I need to be in the picture. So I've got to selfie it, right? And there's a sense in which selfies aren't, I'm not saying selfies are evil. Uh, I tend to be the picture taker of the family. So every now and then I do selfies just so that I can be seen with my family. Um, But we're idol makers. We love ourselves. We love images of ourselves to the point where we put ourselves in danger to take pictures. There are some countries that are actually now having uh, selfie free zones. If you're taking pictures in this zone, it can't be a selfie. I don't know what the consequence would be. I don't know what would happen. But listen, as creative as we are as human beings, what do we produce? What is the thing that enamors us more than anything else? And it's ourselves. Right now, more than ever, uh, young kids, I was, I was a teacher at Legacy Christian Academy for five years. And I mean, when I was a kid and you asked a kid, what do you want to be when you grow up? It was like astronaut or, you know, big things like that. Now, what do you want to be when you grow up? Do you know the number one thing kids say? I want to be a TikTok star or a YouTuber. I want to be, right? It's, I, want, I want those likes. I want people to like me and to follow me and, and the things that I say and the things that I do, I want them to know about and I want them to like it. And there's part of us that's drawn to that, right? We want to be like the movie star that gets a little bit of attention. We want our moment of glory. How many of us have said, uh, maybe not out loud, I hope no one's actually ever said this out loud, but maybe in your own heart, listen, if I were God, I wouldn't have done that. If I were God, I wouldn't have made me this way. If, if I were God, I would never let that thing happen. This difficulty in my life, the sickness that I have in my life, the chronic pain that I'm going through, the whatever it is, right? If I were God, I wouldn't. Because we have this overinflated sense of who we are. Remember, remember his greatness. Number one, remember the craftsman weakness. And you, half the time, are the craftsman of your own little idols. And then the idols that you do worship that other people have crafted, know that they're made by men. Their own weaknesses are visible. I love how God says in, in Jeremiah chapter 10, he says this, they make, he's talking about idols, so they make it beautiful with silver and gold. So, so it's not just a wooden idol, but maybe it's made out of silver, made out of gold. It's, it's beautified in some way. And then they strengthen it. Here's the part I love. They strengthen it with nails and with hammers so that it won't totter. 
Because God needs to be set up in a place where he won't totter. He won't fall down. Our little idols need to be hammered into place. And we have to, we have to support them and structure them from our own knowledge. Because the idol itself can't care for itself. Here's what he says in our text. He says, um, where's it at? He makes it like a man so that it may sit in a house. That was in the end of verse 13. So that it may sit in a house. The idols that we make need to sit in a house where the wind and the rain can't get to them. And so it won't be, they won't be harmed by, by sun. And they need to be protected and we need to protect them. And so we cover them and care for them. And we, we care for our little idols in our lives. We put hammers and nails to them so that they don't totter. How unlike Israel's Lord are our little idols the Lord of hosts, the maker of heavens, of the heavens and the earth. By the power of his word, he needs no house to hold him down. He can't be held down. He doesn't need to be protected from the wind and the rain. He created the wind and the rain. He fills all space at all time with the power of his fullness. And that's who he is. How unlike our petty idols the Lord of hosts is. But he's not done. Verse 14, look how ridiculous the craftsman is while performing his craft. The Lord makes a simple yet really pointed argument, right? Look what he says. He goes into the the tree. He goes into the forest. By the way, did the idol maker plant that forest? No. He may have planted a tree here and there, but the forest and the creation of that seed that he planted was not created by him. So here's the idol maker. He goes into a forest and he picks a tree at random. It's not chosen by the God himself. It's not chosen by the the power of the idol. Rather, it's randomly chosen by a man. And it's raised among other trees. And and he didn't water it. He He didn't cause it to grow. He didn't do anything. He just went out into the forest with his axe or his saw and eeny, meeny, miny, moe. It might have been a cypress. It might have been, it might have been an oak. But he plants a fir. But here's look at the very end of verse 14. He plants a fir. And the rain makes it grow. Do you see the ridiculous nature of idol worship? And God is not holding back. He's just going after the craftsman. He's going after the weakness of the idol itself. And he's about to go after uh, the third part. And we're going to get to that in a second. But he's like, this is absolutely ridiculous. It's ludicrous. But he's not done. Let's continue to read. Uh, Verses 15 to 17. Then, so he's gone into the forest, right? Verse 14, he's he's cut down a tree, a tree that he picked at random. Then, verse 15, he it becomes something for a man to burn. So he cuts this tree down and some of it's for him to burn. So he takes one of them, presumably one of these trees, or cuts it in half, and warms himself. And he makes a fire to bake bread. And he also makes a God and worships it. He makes a graven image and he falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. And over this half he eats meat and roasts a roast and is satisfied. And he warms himself and says, Oh, I am warm. I have seen the fire. But the rest of it he makes into a God, his graven image. And he falls down before it and he worships And he also prays to it. And he says to it, deliver me for you are my God. 
So we've got an idol or a God who's utterly dependent on man to make him, to create him, to protect him, to perfect him. And he needs the man to polish him and to shine him and to set him up and to nail him down and hammer him so he doesn't totter. And now we get into how that little guy is made. And the craftsman goes out into a forest and he cuts down a tree and he doesn't see how ridiculous this is. But he takes this tree and and half of it he brings home, chops up into firewood. He warms himself by it. He bakes dinner. He gets some nice bread with butter. I don't know what he put on it, right? But he enjoys himself and he warms himself and goes, "Mm, that was good. And the other half of the same tree, he makes an idol and he builds it up and he worships it and he lays down before it. He's deceived to the point of prostrating himself and praying for deliverance. And he doesn't even see the senselessness in, the, in his own act. He doesn't see the, the ludicrous nature of the entire process. Said like this, all of us should say, I'll never worship idols. But 1 John 5 creeps back. Little children, protect your hearts from idols because while we don't go out and have to create the tool and cut the tool and make the tool and then go out and cut the tree down, a random tree, a tree that I didn't even grow and bring it back and make it into a fire and then make a little idol, while we aren't about that, be careful because we are about that in so many little ways in our own hearts. How ridiculous. He uses wood for his own pragmatic purposes and then he bows down to it. Listen, we might be far from that in our minds and in our hearts. But we worship similar things. And we worship them in similar ways. We strive to get degrees from schools and diplomas and grades. And we want to put money in a bank. And we want bank accounts. And we want retirement funds. And we want cars. Not just Fiat Tipo kind of cars. We want cars, right? Maybe you, maybe you want a truck. Maybe that's what you want. And you want a big truck, not just a little pickup truck, right? We, we put our desires into wanting things and these things aren't bad. But be careful because if your hope is in those things and, and your assurance is in those things and that money that's in your account and the 401k and, and you're worried about the market and how the market's going to go because that's going to affect you rather than saying, Lord, you have my future. I worship you. These things are things that we do. These are idols that we make. And we do bow down and worship them. They aren't bad and evil in and of themselves, but they can be very quickly. You don't need to have a little Buddha sitting on your shelf to be an idol worshiper. Ralph Waldo Emerson writes this, a person will worship something, have no doubt about that. And we may think that we pay our tribute in secret and in the secret and the dark recess of our hearts, but it will come out. That which dominates our imaginations and our thoughts will determine our lives and our character. Therefore, it behooves us to be careful what we worship or what we are worshiping because what we're worshiping, we are becoming. What we're worshiping, we're becoming. That's Ralph Waldo Emerson, a non-believer. Nails it on the head though. Not only are the craftsmen to be pitied and the idols themselves inferior, but those who trust them are blind. This is our third sub point. Those who trust them are blind. Let's talk about the followers' weakness. The followers' weakness. Verse 18 through 20. They do not know 
Nor do they understand, for he has smeared over their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they will not have insight. No one causes this to return to his heart, this thought, this idea. No one can bring this thought or idea back to himself. Nor is there knowledge or understanding enough to say, wait a minute, I've burned half of it in the fire and also baked bread over its coals. I roast meat and eat it. Then I make the rest of it into an abomination. I fall down before a block of wood. He feeds on ashes. A deceived heart has turned him aside. He cannot deliver his soul and he cannot say, is there a lie in my right hand? He's blind to truth. Remember my friend as we're back in Italy and and Sebastian's on my street and I said, but why do we worship this man rather than worshiping the object of his faith, Christ? And my friend was blind. His eyes were smeared over as it says here. He cannot see and his heart has no insight because he's blind. You have friends, you have family, maybe that are caught up in things like this. They're blind. You can have your best arguments. You can know the best apologetics. You can listen to the best podcasts. You can have it, you can have it perfect. But in the end, that person's blind. Unless the Lord opens their eyes, they cannot see. It's not just about us, is it? It's also about others. These verses underscore the ignorance of the craftsmen that he displays as he goes about his days. The idolaters are spiritual fools. They're spiritually ignorant. They can't understand and they can't know. Shame on us though because we can understand and we do know and yet we allow little idols to creep up into our own hearts. In my city, when Sebastian would come and these, the, the Sebastian's boys would bring this statue around, one of the things that they would do is they wouldn't wear shoes. They would go barefoot as kind of this act of devotion. But they were blind to the fact that they're also wearing six pairs of socks covering their feet because while they're barefoot, they still don't want to get hurt. And there's hypocrisy in that. They can't see it because they're blind. Simple people do not want a holy and righteous God We want a world that we've created and that we've designed and that we can control and that we can dictate. We want our lives to go the way we want them to go. We want a God who pleases our pleasures and listens to our lusts and bows at our beckoning. These idol worshipers can't even understand what they're doing. They think they're doing well, but it's far from the truth. When we do it, We know what we're doing. He feeds on ashes, God says. He feeds on ashes. It's a reference to the the emptiness of his actions. Just as eating ash would provide no real sustenance and nutrients for a meal, so idol worship is feeding on ashes. I think, in my opinion, as, as we read through this, this is one of the saddest, this is the saddest commentary on idol worship. This little section here, because they don't even know what they're doing. They can't even realize it. They don't even know that there's a lie in their own right hand and they can't see it. And we'll get to where I think we need, what we need to do with that in a moment. But this, for me, this is the saddest part. But our hope is in Christ and we know better, right? Idols blind people, God opens people's eyes. Idols give them no understanding, but God gives wisdom and understanding. Idolatry is a deceptive lie, but God is the God of truth. 
idols lead people astray, God calls people to turn from lies to truth. Believer, how do you guard your heart from idols? The little idols that we create. We do it by knowing his greatness. First and foremost, you have to be enamored by his greatness. You've got to be blown away by how awesome the God is that you serve. But you also need to see the weakness of the idols. Not only the craftsmen, not only the idols themselves, but even following the idol worship, you need to see, you need to understand. That's got to be clear in your mind. So what are some of the implications of this text as we come to conclusion? There's probably quite a few that we could draw from it. I've picked two. One has to do with non-believers. So as you think about your family and friends, non-believers who are around you in your life, the doctrinal spiritual reality is that they're blind. They can't see. They can't see. It makes it clear, this text makes it clear that non-believers are blind to truth. So what we need to do is preach the gospel. We need to pray for them, right? The apostle Paul says in in Acts 26, while he's giving his testimony, he says that the Lord sent him to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and place and a place among those who are sanctified in faith. He also writes one of my favorite texts in the New Testament, thinking about blindness and darkness and light and the God who creates the light. Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians. In their case, talking about non-believers, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we proclaim, uh, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus as Lord, with ourselves as servants. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone or shone in the lights in our hearts to give light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. The very God who said, let there be light is the very God who opened your eyes, the very God who exploded into the darkness of your heart with light. And he's the only one who can do it. So what do we do? We pray. We pray for our neighbors. We pray for our non-believing family members. We pray for our coworkers. We pray for co-students with us or students in the classroom. We pray and we pray and we pray. Because only God can open their eyes. And we continue to speak truth, but knowing that unless God opens their eyes, they're not going to see the truth. So we pray. Secondly, the second implication in this conclusion is that you must cast your homemade gods far from you. Cast them far from you. May they be gone out of your lives. Make no mistake that while we don't have idols sitting on your shelves, there's a battle in your heart to remove them just like we saw in 1 John 5. Anything that takes the Lord's place as your primary goal of worship is an idol. Anything that vies for your attention can become an idol. Anything which, to which you give higher glory than that of God himself is an idol. And that may be your finances. It may be a sport. It may be a degree or studying has become an idol to you. It may be fear or anxiousness has become an idol to you. It may be your sickness has become an idol to you. It may be that the things aren't going the way you wanted them to go has become an idol for you. Anything 
can become an idol. It may be your family. It may be your ministry. It may be your success as a homeschooling parent or a public schooling parent or a private schooling parent. Whatever it is, that may be your idol. It could be your position on COVID has become your battle horse and your idol. It may be your vax or no vax position has become your idol. And if that's what you talk about more than Christ, it is an idol. If you're known on social media as only that guy who argues or that girl who's argumentative and polemical, potentially that's an idol for you. Cast those things away. What you want to be known for, for the people around here, is that you love Christ and that you worship Christ and that you serve Christ and that he is your king and your redeemer. He is the one who has never abandoned you and never forsaken you. If you want to be known for anything, let it be that. If there's anything that goes on my tombstone one day, my hope is that it will be like in the book of Chronicles. He sought the Lord with all of his heart. He did well because he sought the Lord. Throughout Chronicles and Kings, the kings either get one or two, one of two final phrases. Either he did evil in the eyes of the Lord because he did not set his heart to seek the Lord or he did right in the eyes of the Lord. Our idols must be far from us. Anything that is threatening to take God's place on the throne of your heart must be removed. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, help us because we need your help. Help us, Lord, because we are idol factories, like John Calvin said. We, we create little idols. We create things to worship. Lord, we're so easily distracted from your beauty and your glory and your your amazingness, your awesomeness, and your awe-inspiringness, Lord, that we turn, to, we turn to silly things. We turn to things that are around us, things of this world. We turn to man-made things, and, and we can get distracted from honoring and worshiping you by thinking about the things around us. Lord, help us. Lord, help us to be focused on you. Help us, Lord, to worship you. Lord, help us to cast these man-made idols